It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on Thursday mornings, uh, we're going to be walking through a series, uh, walking basically all the way through Scripture. And uh, so we're kind of be, we're going to be doing this in a kind of different layers. Uh, this first 10 weeks, kind of in tandem with Eric's glossary, the gospel Monday, Wednesday stuff, uh, we're going to be kind of doing a very high-level view of Scripture and kind of walking through globally Scripture, uh, probably at like a, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000-foot view. And we're going to basically walk through all of Scripture in about 10 weeks, which is impossible, I realize, but we're at least going to attempt it. And then my plan is, once we get through that, to come back through and then kind of go a little bit more in depth and walk through Scripture again, but maybe at a 20,000-foot view. Uh, So I'm calling, at least today, the grand story, the sweeping epic, or the sweeping saga. Uh, I love this idea of, as we get into Scripture, that there is, this book has one story. Now, obviously, it's full of a whole bunch of stories, and it has a whole bunch of books, and yet it has one book with one story. I love that concept. In other words, even if you just look at it from, uh, from a global perspective, you recognize that this book is supernatural, uh, that you cannot produce this in, in a human sense. Uh, so what I want to talk about today is kind of laying the foundation for this idea of where we're, we're going to be heading with this sweeping saga, this, this epic story over these next few weeks. Um, so we're going to kind of lay some foundation, but I want to talk about the fact that this is, this is one book with one story, with one author, even though it's a whole bunch of stories in a whole bunch of books with a whole bunch of authors. But we'll explain that in just a second. I love this quote from F.F. F. Bruce. He said it this way. <clears throat> he says, any part of the human body can only be properly explained in reference to the whole body, and any part of the Bible can only be properly explained in reference to the whole Bible. The Bible, at first sight, appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. And if we inquire into the circumstances under which the various biblical documents were written, we find that they were written at intervals over a space of nearly 1,400 years. The writers wrote in various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a heterogeneous number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. In their ranks, we have kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislatures, which I can't say, fishermen, statesmen, couriers, priests, and prophets, a tent-making rabbi and a Gentile physician, not to speak of others of whom we know nothing apart from the writings which they have left us. The writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types. They include history, law, including civil, criminal, ethical, ritual, sanitary, It has religious poetry, didactic treatises, lyrical poetry, parable and allegory, biography and personal correspondence, personal memoirs and diaries, in addition to the distinctly biblical types of prophecy and apocalyptic. For all of that, Bruce says, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is a unity which binds the whole together. An anthology is compiled by an anthologist, but no anthologist compiled the Bible. In other words, when you look at this, yeah, it was written by a whole bunch of authors, you know, over 40 different authors. And yet, it was written over the course of 1,400 years. And yet, it's, a, it's 66 books. And yet, do you realize that there is one theme and one story and one primary author? His name is God himself. And we understand that this was God-breathed, that these are the very words of God. 
And the Holy Spirit was carrying along these men to write this book. So though it had human authors, and though it was over the whole bunch of centuries and a whole bunch of uh, distances, this is, this is one book with one theme, with one author, with, and that is supernatural. And it's mind-boggling when you realize that some of the stuff that's in this book you cannot describe in a human sense. That what this author was writing over here and what this author was writing over here at the same time is in perfect parallel to each other. That they're, that they're in perfect synergy with each other. And the only way you can describe that is obviously God was moving upon, the, upon these men to write this book. Isn't that beautiful? I just, I just love that. It's exciting. <clears throat> I've heard this term countless times in my life that we are New Testament believers. I know what they're trying to say by that. I don't like the language, though. Personally, I'm a Bible believer. Not just a New Testament believer. It just kind of cracks me up when, you, when I meet these people and they have you know, their pocket New Testaments in their, in their back pocket, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, uh, and you pull, they pull it on and they're like, hey, you know, I, got, I got my Bible. And I'm like, no, you got half a Bible. Because you realize you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And you cannot properly understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. You need both parts. Uh, maybe for a, a really horrible, cheesy illustration, uh, imagine you pick up a, a whodunit novel, right? One of those murder mysteries. And you rip the thing in half, and you give one half to this kid, and you give this half to this kid, and you say, okay, read it. You realize it will not make any sense. Because the kid who gets the front half is going to find out, oh, there's this murder that takes place, and then it stops. And then this person, oh, we find out that Bob did it in the library with a candlestick. But we don't know actually what happened. <laughs> like, what are the details? In other words, you need both pieces of a whodunit novel. Horrible illustration, okay, just for clarity's sake. But that being said, you realize you cannot rip this thing in half and say, well, I, I, only, I only embrace the New Testament. That this is, hey, it's the New Covenant, I'm living in the New Covenant, so I'm a New Covenant believer. Well, I hope you're living in the New Covenant and the reality of all of that, and you're a believer of that. However, hey, if you're going to be a believer, you have to be a believer in the entirety of this thing. Because you need the Old Testament to give the context and the, the reason why the New Testament is so significant. And yet, if you don't have the New Testament, the Old Testament makes no sense whatsoever. Does that make sense? So you need both pieces. Uh, you need the totality of the two. So I am not a New Testament believer, though I am a New Testament believer. I am a Bible believer. And I want to hold this as true. Everyone awake this morning? Some of you are just like, uh, we're here. <clears throat> so I want to give you a quick overview of the story. So again, over these next nine weeks or so, we're going to be walking a little bit more in detail and breaking this thing into its pieces and kind of looking at the global story. But this has one story. And again, there's a whole bunch of, you know, sub-stories contained within. But you realize that there is one driving story, narrative, in this book which is phenomenal. And if you want a simple way of saying this, uh, one of my old professors said it this way. She said, it's God's people dwelling in God's place with full access to his presence. I thought that's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? It's God's people dwelling in God's place with full access to his presence. Uh, I'm not fully sold on how I'm titling all of this, 
But here's my attempt of breaking this into 10 sections. And I just want to walk through this really quick so you know where we're heading. But in so doing, I want to give you the Bible story in like five minutes. Which is impossible, too, in the fullest sense. We understand. But in terms of just seeing the global story, you realize this book opens up with a key character. And it is the key character that runs through the entire book. It's God himself. And we understand that God isn't just, you know, it's not just the Father. We understand we're talking about the triune God. It's the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that triune God says, oh, I have this great excitement. I just have this great idea. I'm going to make a universe. And God really speaks creation in, into existence. And we're going to look at this next week. But do you know who spoke creation into existence? The New Testament says Jesus is the one who spoke creation into existence. I love that. And you can say, well, Jesus wasn't there. Yes, he was. Because though Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, you realize he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He always has been and he always will be. He is God himself. And so you have God in the very beginning who has this overwhelming passion. And it seems like this passion is for relationship and intimacy. And so he creates this world and he puts humanity in it. Why? Because he wants relationship. He doesn't need relationship. But he wants it. And so he, he literally establishes what's what I'm calling the kingdom of the king. He is literally establishing a kingdom on this earth. And he looks at these people and he says, I'm entrusting you with this kingdom. And I want you to be ambassadors. I want you to literally have my image, if you will, showcasing in the world. And I want you to really propagate. I want you to really go and declare forth who I am to this world. I want you to make more image bearers. So this world will know who I am. And as you know the story, uh, one day these two image bearers are in the garden and they come to this tree and there's a snake. Nasty. I hate snakes. I can biblically prove they are not of God. I'm just, ugh, I hate snakes. And apparently the snake was standing upright. I have no idea what that looks like. Uh, but probably bouncing on his tail or something, right? And he comes over and he's talking to, Adam, or he's talking to Eve and says, hey, why don't you eat the fruit? And she's like, no. And he's like, yeah, you should. And she goes, okay. And she eats it. I'm being quick and dramatic, right? But, but she eats the fruit. And, of course, this causes rebellion. And it's, it's this usurping of, I'm taking that which is not mine. I'm actually living in independence from God. That I don't actually want to live in God's dependency. I don't want to live in God's life and his, his light. I want to live for myself. And there's this rebellion that takes place. And the kingdom is actually rejected. And it's what we typically call the fall. And what you have from that point forward, after Genesis chapter 3, is here is God who has this overwhelming plan of redemption. Why? Because he's wanting to restore his people back into relationship and intimacy. And so he's just going out of his way to pursue and go after and call and woo so he can bring those people back in. And so what you have is he calls this man called Abraham, and he gives this promise of the kingdom, that Abraham, through you, I'm really going to bless the entire world. And he begins to have this promise of this future kingdom that is given through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then as you know, the, they, they start having children, and you have this huge, massive group that we begin to call Israel, and they find themselves in slavery, and then, they, then God brings them out of the slavery and puts them in, into their own land. And they begin to rehearse this kingdom. It's not the reality of the kingdom. It's not the fullness of the kingdom. But it's a shadow of the kingdom, according to the book of Hebrews. And they're beginning to rehearse the kingdom. But again, it's all in types and shadows. 
that we're going through the festivals and we're going through these sacrifices and we're going through these things day in and day out. Why? Because it's a rehearsal of that which is to come. Why did God give us law? Oh, it's so that we're preparing for that which is to come. Why did God give us the festivals? Oh, it's to prepare for us that which is to come. Why did he give us the tabernacle and the temple? Oh, it's to prepare us for that which is to come. It's a shadow of the heavenly realities. And so we spend all this time rehearsing and rehearsing. And what you end up finding is that as it goes forward, you have this kingdom prophesied. Here is David uh, and, the, and, the, and the prophets that the kingdom eventually splits. And, and there's this prophecy of, hey, the kingdom is coming. The fullness of the kingdom is, is on the brink. It's, it's almost here. And then you have the kingdom in waiting where there's this 400 years of silence. And it's like everything hushes waiting for this grand moment to take place. And at the end of these 400 years, we have this coming of the king, which is all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That the king has come, and he is reestablishing his kingdom on this earth, as he originally intended. And then after the crucifixion, what you see is this whole movement of the mission of the king, which is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the evangelization of the entire world. That as Acts 17.6 says, that these, that these Christians began to go out into the world. And I love what Acts 17.6 says. They grab this man by the name of Jason, and their accusation against Jason is, hey, you are one of those men who turned the world upside down. Isn't that a great statement? Which I actually think is up right side up. It's not really upside down. But when you're upside down, you, I mean, you feel like everything's topsy-turvy anyway. But wouldn't it be neat if we were a generation, in this generation, that the accusation against our lives was, you're some of those people who turned the world upside down. Oh, that's a Christian. But it's this mission of the king. And we are somewhere in the middle of all this. You, you recognize we are in the middle of this mission of the king? Because the return of the king has not taken place yet. But the king is going to return. And he's going to literally establish, restore, and perfect this kingdom that he has awaiting for us. Isn't that a beautiful story? That just excites me. And you know, every good story has tension. Do you know how much tension is in this book? Oh. Every good story has a bad guy. Ooh, we have the worst. I mean, of all bad guys, we have the bad guy. Right? I mean, if you thought Hitler was bad, think about the guy who's controlling the, the puppet stringing Hitler. I mean, he's our bad guy. So, I mean, this is, this is one of the most epic stories of all time. It is one of the most exciting stories of all time. And when you look at this book, do you realize this is not some boring book that we, we take to church on Sundays? This, this thing has war and battle and blood. Oh, it's awesome. Guys love this. It has romance and love. Every woman gets excited. Oh. It has poetry. Oh. I mean, this is an exciting book. Now, as you look at the book, what you begin to discover is that even though each of the 66 books has a central theme, and, and, and obviously we need to study it in light of that central theme and the purpose of that book, there are several threads that weave themselves through the entirety of this book. And obviously there's, there's a whole bunch of these, but I just want to give you a few of them. Uh, for example, there's this thread that weaves its way through with this idea of the covenant, that God is a covenantal God. He makes promises, that, that God makes a covenant, and the covenant is sure. In fact, we'll talk about that in just one second. But that there's this covenantal language uh, throughout this book. Uh, there's this whole idea of the kingdom. And of course, I'm kind of playing on that with, some of my, with, with, my, with my titling. But that there's this king, 
and his desire to establish a kingdom on this, on this earth. So there's a thread that weighs, weighs this all the way through. Life is a key theme in this book. That what you see in the very beginning in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is that there's a tree of life. And isn't it interesting at the very end of the book that there's a tree of life. And there's some beautiful things. And by the way, if you want a fun study, study Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in light of the last couple chapters of Revelation. And you see these incredible parallels. For example, there's a river in Genesis 1 and 2. There's a river at the end of Revelation. There's a tree of life in Genesis. There's a tree of life in the book of Revelation. There's some really profound parallels of that which God established in a garden grows up into a city in Revelation. That which started with two humans here grows up into a family here. There's some just beautiful threads that, that weave itself through and find its fulfillment here in the book of Revelation. You have this whole idea of love. And we understand that God is love, but you, but you recognize that one of his uh, primary themes in this book is the overwhelming love of God and all that he's longing to do and accomplish in and through our lives. And we're not talking about the fact that he's passive and he's a pushover, because obviously he's a holy, just, righteous God, and he's going to live out of that. But he is a God of love. And so what you're going to see is that he has this heart of love who is wooing his bride back to him. I mean, you, you come into the prophets and you just hear this anguish of God saying, oh, you have, you have run from me. Hey, you have prostituted yourself with the world. I, I, I want to woo you back. Come back into relationship. And there's this heart, this overwhelming passion, heart, love of God who is wooing his people. Why? Because he is a God of love. There's this whole redemptive narrative that flows and weaves itself through the entirety of Scripture. That the moment that humanity fell, you realize that God didn't have like a, oh, no, i got to come up with a new plan. Like, what's my plan B? They just ruined it. Because, you know, they ruined plan A. What's... But do you realize that God has always had a heart of redemption? And he says that, that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. Meaning even before, let there be light was spoken, the plan was already in place. Which is a neat thought. And of course, there's this whole outside of time perspective of God who can look and see the whole thing at one time. But, but do you realize that, that God has a heart of redemption? And so you start to see this thread of redemption through all these stories. You, you look at Rahab, the prostitute in, in Jericho, and what is it? That is a redemptive story of God's heart. And you start seeing this redemptive theme all the way through Scripture. And then again, as I've said, there's this whole undertone of relationship and intimacy in this book. That it's not like God needs us. I mean, he can cause rocks to sing better than we do. I mean, truly, a, a real rock band could do far better than we could. That, I think that's funny, but... He doesn't need us, but it's like he wants us. That he somehow condescends himself to want to be in relationship with us. That he's like, I don't need you, but I want you. See, there's something precious about that, that he's longing for relationship. There, there's a wedding motif that runs the entirety of Scripture, which I think is just, it's so mind-boggling the more I've been studying it. That, that here's God who, it's like he, he's longing for a bride for his son. And so what does he do? He, he creates his people as a bride for his son. And we see in the book of Revelation the, the climax of this when the bride and the bridegroom come together and there's a wedding feast and, wow, this is, they're, hey, they're finally, the marriage of the Lamb has taken place. And you see this wedding concept flow all the way through Scripture. There's this worship thing that runs all the way through Scripture. Because he is worthy for our worship. 
And worship not just in terms of singing, worship in terms of life and how we live day by day. So we're going to be looking at some of these key themes as we walk through. Uh, just to kind of give some framework really quick, <coughs> uh, some of the key people, if you just want some, if you want a placeholder in your mind for some of the key people uh, and proposed dates, uh, to start at the bottom and work up, Paul, most of his ministry happened between 50 and 70 A.D., and of course, he wrote a bulk of the New Testament. Jesus, which obviously his story is recorded in the Gospels, happened right around 0 B.C. Now, we understand it probably wasn't perfect 0, okay? But just for the sake of simplicity, we're putting 0. Sound good? Likely it was a few years prior to that. But uh, David was right around 1,000 B.C. So, biblically, when you're, when you're holding on to uh, time frames, and you're thinking, okay, when, when did David take place? Oh, it was about 1,000 years before Jesus. So when was Solomon? A little less than that, right? In other words, it gives you at least a placeholder so you can reason from. If you go back about another 500 years, you have Moses. So right around the 1,500-year mark, you have Moses and the coming out of Egypt and uh, walking, into, or walking across the Red Sea kind of stuff. Uh, 2,000 B.C., you have Abraham. And at some point, I should remember, I have a piece of pottery from Israel that was from the time of Abraham. I had a friend who was in an archaeological dig. He bought me this, brought me back this piece of pottery, which I was told was illegal. Later, I don't know what to do with it now. I have to keep it. But, uh, but it's this piece of pottery that it's, that's 4,000 years old. That's dated from the time of Abraham. Isn't that a crazy thought? That Abraham was 4,000 years ago. That's just crazy. That's older than most of you. Maybe not Dan, but most of, most of the rest of you. Just kidding. Uh, Noah, and again, it's hard to start once you get back into the Noah before. It's hard to give direct dates, but Noah's right around the 2,300-year mark, and then Adam was what we pres- presume to be right around the 4,000 mark. So we've been, we've been doing this humanity thing. God has been walking through humanity for about 6,000 years, which I think is actually brilliant on so many levels, but we don't have time to get into any of that. Uh, so if you're just wanting some holders in your mind in terms of Scripture, uh, obviously zero is a good marker for Jesus. Go back a thousand years, that's, uh, that's David. Another 500 years, that's Moses. Another 500 years, that's Abraham. And you go back to 4,000 B.C., it's Adam. Now, we mentioned the fact that God is a covenantal God, and he uses covenants. And we're going to be walking through some of these as we walk through Scripture. But just to kind of give you some of the key covenants, some scholars propose that Adam actually had a covenant. It was the creation covenant. If you want to argue that, that's fine. Uh, but Noah had a covenant. There was a rainbow in the sky, right? And there's this whole idea of recreation. Abraham received the promise. There was this Abrahamic promise that is fulfilled in Jesus. That Moses had the Mosaic covenant, which is the law itself. David had the kingly covenant, the Davidic covenant. And Jesus himself was the fulfillment of all of that. That he is the fulfillment of every covenant prior. He is the new covenant. New, not in the sense of different new. New in the sense of it's the fulfillment of and the, the restoration of and the climax of in one person covenant. That makes sense. So with all that being said, we have 66 books, but it's one book. We have 40 different authors, though there's one author. We have a whole bunch of stories, even though there's just one story. And one driving force. And what is that one driving force? If you could summarize, what is the key focus of this book? 
You can say it in one word. Jesus. Because that is the reality of this book. And obviously there's a lot of other stuff happening in this book. We find out who we are as humans and our identity in him because of this book. We understand creation because of this book. We understand what's coming because of this book. We understand how we're to live because of this book. But this book primarily has one key focus, one driving thrust. What is that? It's Jesus. And you recognize that everything in this book points to Jesus. That as, you, as you're in the Old Testament, what you hear is shadowy language. Uh, you hear hints. You hear, it's like this big finger pointing in a direction saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Hello, he's coming! Right? And then after Jesus, you have like this finger pointing backwards saying, he's come, he's come, he's come! This book is about a person and his work upon the cross. It's all about Jesus. In fact, two of my favorite scriptures, <coughs> excuse me, John chapter 5, Jesus is uh, talking to the Pharisees. And you know the Pharisees are the, uh, they're the smart individuals. Uh, they're the ones that wear the long robes. They have the big phylacteries. Uh, these are the guys with the PhD, PhD, PhD after their name. Uh, these are the guys who write the big, thick books. Uh, these are the guys who live down in Jerusalem and teach at the seminary. I mean, these are the Pharisees. Did you know that a young Jewish kid, right around the age of five years old, they would begin to study and begin to memorize the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament stuff. And so as a five-year-old, as a five-year-old little Jewish boy, my parents would hand me the Old Testament, the, the books of Moses, and say, okay, you need to begin to memorize this. And do you know what book I would begin to memorize at age five? Leviticus! Isn't that just miserable? Have you read Leviticus? It's just, whoa, law. It's just, eh, best devils. Do you know why they would start with Leviticus? Because it enunciates the perfection and the holiness of God and his desire for that for his people. And so as a five-year-old little boy, I began to memorize the book of Leviticus. By the age of 12, I would have the five books of Moses memorized, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if I would continue on with my studies, by the time I, I became a late teenager, I would typically have the entirety of the Old Testament memorized, word for word. In fact, the statement was that any rabbi could open up the scroll, put his finger down, give the word, and that student should be able to continue from that point forward. How are you guys doing? We're going to have a test. See how we're going to start with Leviticus. Just kidding. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So think about this. We have this group of Pharisees who it's not, it's not just that they know the Bible. They know the Bible. They've been memorizing this thing since they were five years old. And Jesus comes and confronts this group of people. And he says, hey, listen to this. You search the scriptures. Is there anything wrong with that? No. That's actually good. You should be searching the scriptures. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, you search the scriptures for what reason? Oh, for in them you think you have eternal life. So why am I spending all my life in studying this book? Because I presume that if I study it, I'll have eternal life. And Jesus says, you've missed it. Because it's this which points to me, referring to the Old Testament. He says, well, you've been studying all these years. Hey, that thing that you've been memorizing since you were five, it all points to me. So it's not bad that you've been studying it and searching it out. Hey, that's, that's great. However, your reasoning for doing so was wrong. 
So you should have been studying it and searching it out. Why? So you could come, and when the fullness has appeared to you, you embrace it. See, if we would go outside and there's a shadow on the ground, we don't go up to the shadow and give the shadow a hug, if that's possible. We could try it, though. Right? We could have Reese stand up, and I'll be like, Reese, I'm going to give you a hug. And I'll go on the floor, and I'll try to give his shadow a hug. Do you know how hard that's going to be? It's impossible, I presume, right? <laughs> Unless you're Peter Pan, then apparently that's different. But, but hey, the shadow, you can't give a shadow a hug. But hey, the, the reason the shadow, it's not that the shadow's not important, the shadow's important. But when the fullness, when the reality shows up, you don't stay with the shadow. If all I ever had was Reese's shadow, then I'd be like, whoa, look, it's Reese's shadow. But if Reese is standing there, I should probably look at Reese and be like, dude, and give Reese a hug. Doesn't that make sense? And it's like Jesus looking at the Pharisees saying, hey, you're, you're, you're getting all wrapped up in a shadow. You're trying to hug a shadow. You're thinking a shadow will give you eternal life. I am life itself. So turn your gaze. But get this. He says, this points to him. This is all about him. After the resurrection, Jesus is on this road called Emmaus. It's a five to seven mile journey from Jerusalem. And Jesus shows up and there's these two disciples and the disciples don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, why do you look so downcast? And they say, what are you talking about? Haven't you heard what's been going on in Jerusalem? Yeah, the one that we thought was the Messiah was just, was just crucified. And it says that Jesus literally, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, by the way, that's language to talk about the entirety of the scriptures. Moses referring to the law, the prophets being basically the rest of it. So it's basically Jesus literally walked through the entirety of the Old Testament and he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you realize that Jesus, this would have been such a cool thing to go through. Go through. Could you imagine walking with Jesus on this five to seven mile journey and Jesus just walking through the Old Testament saying, see that, that's about the Messiah. Yep, see that, that's about the Messiah. See that, that's about the Messiah. Why? Because this book is all about him and his desire to redeem. It's all about him and the cross. Paul says, I want to preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's what this is all about. Do you know what your life's supposed to all be about? Jesus and him crucified. Hey, if we were to summarize your life, how should we be able to summarize your life? Jesus. In fact, one of my all-time favorite quotes came from Ian Thomas. Ian Thomas said that the only explanation for your life is supposed to be Jesus. That when the world looks at you, that the world should be that your life should be utterly inexplainable to the world around you. That somehow the world just can't, they can't understand, they can't describe how you're living your life outside of Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? Do you know what we would call someone who lived like that? I think we'd have to call him a Christian. And this book is all about one person and his work. Well, one final thought or a question, and we'll close. And we're actually going to start walking through <clears throat> the scriptures next week. But just to lay a foundation, I have a question for you. Why did God pick a little land in the Middle East called Israel as his promised land? You realize a lot of this book hinges on that reality. Uh, it's only been this last year or two that <clears throat> geography has actually become really important to me. For whatever reason, I just never cared <laughs> up to this point. But I began to realize that 
Geography is really significant. And this is going to sound brilliant, I'm, I'm positive. But do you recognize that everything in history happened somewhere? That's good. You should write that down. That's like, that's powerful. <clears throat> yeah, everything in history has happened somewhere. Everything has this geo, geog, geographical tie to it. So why did God choose Israel as his promised land? Because if you look at Israel, it, it doesn't look like a promised land. When I was a kid, I thought promised land, I was thinking like Bahamas. On a day like this, that sounds like the promised land. Doesn't it? Lush green, the sound of the waves, sitting on a beach with a cup of lemonade or sweet tea, mix them together and have an Arnold Palmer. I mean, it just, it just sounds amazing. Right, grab a book and just relax. That sounds like the promised land. Oh. And yet, do you know what the promised land's full of? Desert. That sounds miserable. It is. Hey, it's a land surrounded by enemies, even to this day. It is a land surrounded by enemies. It has always been a land surrounded by enemies. It's a place of rocks. I, I, I spent about a decade in Tennessee, and Tennessee is renowned. Tennessee, there's no basements in Tennessee. Why? Because it is so rocky, you, just, it's, you don't want to waste your time digging out all the rocks. In fact, you, you drive down the road, and there's all these rock fences everywhere. And why did they have those? Well, because back in the day, you had to plow the field and have a farm, and you know, you'd always pull up these rocks. So what are you going to do with the rocks? I don't know. Let's just make a fence with them. And so you just, you know, have this stone barrier. It is rocky, but that, they have nothing on Israel. There are so many rocks everywhere. It is rocky. I mean, if you want to farm, you're going to have rocks and rocks and rocks and rocks and rocks. Do you know what they built their buildings out of in Israel? Rocks. Why? Because they don't have much wood. It's a desert. So Jesus was a carpenter, which didn't mean he worked with wood. It means is, the actual idea is he was a stonemason. He was an architect. He was picking up rocks from the ground and building a house with it. Why, why would God choose that kind of a place? That makes it difficult. Yeah. It's a place of difficulty. It's a place where water is precious because they don't have very much. If you, if you ask an Israeli today, what is your most precious possession? They'll say, our water. It is so sacred. And they guard it like crazy. Because they recognize as an enemy, all you'd have to do is drop something into like the Sea of Galilee and all their fresh water is gone. So they are very protective of their water source. Because they only have one key, outside of a few springs and wells, they have one key fresh water source. So why would God choose that kind of land? That's your homework for tonight. Just kidding, I'll just tell you. Why this land in the Middle East? Because you realize this land, even the land itself, shows Jesus Christ. Even the land itself reveals the life that you are called to live. Which is what? A life of dependency. A life of trust. It's interesting that as the Israelites come into the promised land, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. There is a lot of bounty in Israel. But it's a place where if you go into it, you have to depend upon God. You have to trust him for the rain every season. You have to trust him for your protection amidst your enemies. You have to trust him that he's going to provide what you need. Why? Because you're living in a desert. And the land forces, it demands dependency and trust. Do you know what your life as a Christian looks like? Your life as a Christian is supposed to be about abiding, trust, 
dependency upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And even the land that God chose was perfectly suited to showcase that. And as we walk through these Bible survey kind of series, I want to show you even some of the, how the land itself showcases Jesus. It's interesting, even where God puts certain valleys and mountains, that even becomes a picture of Jesus. It is so profound to me. The more I look back at some of the geography, it's like, that's not by accident. That mountain was there on purpose, and that reveals Jesus. It is profound. Why? Because this all is about Jesus, even the geography. And as we begin to talk about this land that God chose for his people, it forces the same thing that it forces in our life as Christians. Are you going to live for yourself? Are you going to try to do it in your own resource, and your own ability? Are you going to trust in the God of the universe to do something in and through you? Are you going to depend upon him for life and salvation? Second Peter 1.3 says, Everything we need for life and godliness is found in one place. Jesus. I want to live like that. So I hope over these next few weeks you can join me. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we're just going to be taking a high-level view of Scripture and looking at this grand sweeping saga, this epic story, this one story, his story. Which I think is going to be kind of fun. Well, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, I love the fact that everything is about you. And as Paul wrote in Romans 11, this truly is all from you and through you and to you. This whole thing is about you. For your praise and your renown and your glory. That my whole life is from you, through you, to you. For your praise and your glory. Lord, somehow could, <clears throat> as we begin to walk in this survey of scripture, as we, as we step back and see this sweeping drama, this saga, this epic that you have, that you have shared with us. That it is actual history. This actually took place and yet it all reveals one person, you. Lord, may we just behold you afresh. May we stand in awe of who you are. May our mouths just fall in wonder and awe. And through it, Jesus, may we somehow embrace you more and may we fall more in love with you and be captured and captivated by you. And You are so good. And Lord, just freshly, I want to declare that I want to depend upon you. I want to trust you. I want to abide in you. And just like the Israelis, even to this day, have to depend upon you for water, for sustenance, for protection. Lord, I want that in you. So Lord, I freshly throw myself upon you and say, oh, I need you for life and for godliness. That I don't want to do this on my own. But I want to depend. I want to abide. I want to surrender. I want to obey. I want to walk out the Christian life triumphantly in you. What an opportunity we have. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.